0: Hey, thanks again for putting up with the the weird format and pardon me for coming in late. My babysitter was late. This is one of those weeks that my wife is working remotely. Um, I thought it might be real helpful to start out um, with a different guide word, because a lot of times um, we hear the word law and normally that goes to do's and don'ts and punishment for us. And it might be really helpful to know that um, in the Jewish mind, uh, the word Torah does not mean law at all. (laughs) Uh, The word Torah is what God gives to Moses on top of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, and it's really designed um, to give people a larger life than they've been experiencing before. So so a good Jewish definition of Torah would be guiding principles or, or guiding relationship to maximize the joy you have with one another. Not just principles, it's important to think about what the word Torah also means in the Bible. So the word, the word Torah describes the first five books that appear in our Bible. So that'd be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? And Think about, we've already been reading large swaths, all of Genesis, half of Exodus we read, Would you say the stories about creation and Abraham have anything to do with the law? I don't think so, (laughs) but they are the Torah, right? They're instrumental in the Torah, and again, those stories are there then alongside law codes, like we read tonight, to give us an idea about who God is and who we are and how we shouldn't act and how we should, so that we can maximize the joy that God intends for us to have, right? Now, we didn't get to do this earlier, but I just want to re- return, because Torah is, again, like a weighty weighty word. We tend to translate it as law, bad translation. Torah, as I told you, is the first five books. Now, if you're Jewish, they really are one book. The reason they are called five different books is because they don't all fit on a scroll. You know, a scroll is made from a veal skin. So these are artificial divisions. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are one thing if you're Jewish, conveniently subdivided into five scrolls. Does that make sense? Um, At the time of Jesus, um, a lot of people would tell you you had to memorize those scrolls before your bar mitzvah. Not read them, but memorize them, right? because that was the Torah. Now, the the books that follow, and it's important just to hop on. I know it's a little bit late in the game. Are uh, are called the Navim. So the Navim, that word in Hebrew means prophet. And and you, your head probably automatically goes to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, maybe books like Daniel. In 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 the Jewish Bible though. The Navim refers to Joshua and Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And you're prob- you probably would say, I mean, the way I grew up learning the Bible, is those are historical books, is what we call them sort of in the church. In the Jewish Bible, they're, they're the Navim, because they, they describe the people's history after the Torah has been given. Helpful to know that if you're Jewish, the Torah trumps the Navim any day of the week. That means if there's a discrepancy about how we should behave, the Torah seems to say A, the Navim say B, you go with A every time. The third category of writings in the Jewish Bible are called the Ketubim. The Ketubim are books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. The word Ketubim just means writings. Which section of the, of the Jewish Bible do you think we're most familiar with in the church? The Gospels. No, they're not in the Jewish Bible. And of these three sections... The Psalms. Psalms. The Psalms, right? In fact, we've given the Psalms primary importance. That's something that happened in the monastic movement, because as you, when you're involved in monastic life, you pray the whole Psalter every week. Every week. There's 150 of them, right? You think that you're having these services like Matins and Vespers. You're you're meeting for these multiple services a day, and you're praying through the Psalter every week. So we know it well, and think about what we do in our lectionary. We go through the Psalter every week, but we don't necessarily go through the Torah every week. Right? We're in a cycle of that. If you're Jewish, the Psalter is the least important part of the Bible. (laughs) The most important part's this one. Um, it may be helpful to just put this together. The acronym that is usually used is the word Tanakh. See, we have just slipped a couple of A-class vowels between those sections, the Tanakh. This is often how the, Bible, the Jewish Bible is referred to by Jewish people, as the Tanakh. Again, to, to return to the, the, the beginning part here, Torah does not mean law in a strict legal American sense, right? Uh, The Jewish mentality is that the Jews have not kept the Torah. The Torah has kept the Jews. And this is God's greatest gift to the people, not God's imposition. Does that make sense? Um, and, And hopefully then... It's helpful to frame a few of the other things that we get to talk about tonight um, because, of course, there are different ways of thinking about, and again, I'm using the word legal code in, in, in that because it's everyday parlance, but we're not just talking about laws here, right? But, but think through laws. There's, there's basically a couple of different systems. There's the, the, the American system is something called casuistic based on case law. Right. So if you were to go to law school, you would study the fact pattern behind instrumental cases and you've learned some of them already, I'm sure, like um, Brown versus the Board of Education. There, was a f- there were facts in that case that dictated a decision. It didn't go the other way around. In some ways, case law is inductive. Right. You know the fact pattern, you come up with a principle based on a case. The European legal code is not always like this. Particularly in Germany, it can be more deductive. It starts from a principle and then gives you the ruling, and then the particulars have to fall underneath it, if that makes sense. We get some case law when we read the Hebrew Bible, some. Um, You can hear, like, if your ox gores somebody, then, oh well, you just put the ox to death. Unless the ox has a history of goring people. Hint, hint, that was a real case. <laughs> Somebody had a goring ox. What do you do with an ox that's gored people before that hasn't been put to death? Well, well, then there's real trouble. right? Uh, another legal system is called apodictic, which is really just an injunction. You will do this, you won't do that. It's not necessarily based on cases. A lot of what we have shows up that way. Right, a lot of what we read is you won't, you won't, you will, you will, and then there's a there's an even a spin on it, um, which is <clears throat> called be holy as I'm holy. A lot of the laws we read in Leviticus are called by scholars the holiness code because there'll be something like thou shalt not blank, I'm the Lord. Uh, You you sort of think about this if you've been around small children. It doesn't matter if if they were your own or not. You can try to be really fair and say, like, here's why we have the rule. Here's why. And then when it's really important, you say, because I'm your mom, right? Or because I'm your dad or because I said so. Um, This is what happens in some of the books that we read because I'm the Lord. (laughs) And that's why you'll do it, right? Um, Hopefully that makes sense. A pivotal bit then, right, and we read this way up front, is that the people of Israel are called to be a priestly and a holy nation. And a lot of times we get confused about what the word holiness implies. A lot of times I think we tend to associate that with a condition of piety. Like so-and-so is a holy person because they pray all the time. So-and-so is a holy person because they go to church all the time and they give x amount of time and blah 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 and and that's not what the bible has in mind and 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 i actually like to start with the concept of holiness and kind of go backward a little bit through the readings if that makes sense Um, holiness really in the bible means being set apart it means being um, easily distinguished from something that's normal and so think about this in your home you have holy things if you have china, I'm suspicious you don't eat on it every day, right? It's set apart for when you have crucial family gatherings like Christmas or Thanksgiving or weddings, right? Some of you probably, some of you probably I don't know, some of you might eat on china every day. In my house, we don't have special dishes. We'd have decided against that. But we do have special wines that we don't drink every day but we preserve for, for momentous occasions. Those would be holy wines in the biblical sense, we've set them apart to not be quotidian or or every day. Does that make sense? And that's really how the Bible intends to use the word. Now, um, you'll notice that there's a lot of different uh, injunctions given about how to do that, and there's probably some things that struck you as really strange um, that are probably aimed in general at People being differentiable even by side, And, and, and what am I talking about? <clears throat> A lot of the, the, the information that we read this week says, you don't do blank because that's what they do in Egypt. You don't do blank because that's what they do in Canaan. With the implication, right, that when you follow that injunction, you'll be immediately differentiable from the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And that's part of the goal here is identity formation. We'll go back to that one in just a second. But think through a little bit um, some of the ways that the people are being called to be deferential, called to be holy. The biggest one probably is the kosher or the kashrut food laws. So kashrut uh, is the Hebrew word for kosher. And and consider um, that the easiest way to segregate people one from another is by... Putting controls on what and how they can eat. Anybody have family members that are vegetarian? Anybody have family members that are vegan? Anybody have family members that are Orthodox Jewish? So if you thought vegan and vegetarian were difficult, let me tell you a vegetarian, I mean, an Orthodox Jewish person can't eat anything I make because everything I make is unclean. My oven's not clean. Anything I cook in it is unclean. And I can't just have a rabbi come bless the oven. The oven's defiled. So anything it makes is defiled. I have an Orthodox Jewish brother. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So does a true Orthodox Jew never eat? at? They eat at kosher restaurants. Well, no, and you should know, this is important to know, most Jewish people only keep kosher the week of Passover. Not even in their home, the week of Passover. You should also know that Judaism, by and large, does not refer to a spiritual system for most Jews. It refers to a cultural system. Um, I don't want to be offensive up front still today, but projected 95% of Jewish people are atheists. And part of the reason the Jewish identity, of course, is important to them is because of the attempted genocide. And so the answer was, well, we'll show you. We'll just keep our customs. Thank you very much. Um, but the spiritual belief, not necessarily. Yes, ma'am. Yes. But it doesn't mean that being German is a religion. Yeah, I mean, it's probably... Yeah, of course it still is, although it also has a cultural identity and sometimes we confuse that they're the same thing and they're not necessarily, right? So it's very possible that you keep Shabbat in your home every week and that you say the kiddish, but that you're a functional atheist. I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm trying to say in some of those ways that's Jewish identity is keeping things like Shabbat, having your bar mitzvah, but that's the extent of your religious involvement. In many ways, that's similar, to, similar to, to a Christian identity, quite honestly. You can be very functionally non believing and still, still go through normal religious practices. Does that sort of make sense? I mean, think about Catholic and, and Protestant attendance on Christmas and Easter, right? Those are the two days that we go. Is that religious? Is it cultural? Eh. It could be some blend of both. Does that it, does it make sense? Uh, and I'm not trying to say that to be offensive. Not that's 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 from I think a Pew study that came out, and it's, it's that's dated, but but, the, but that number um, came out a while ago. So anyway, this this becomes really really important um, to think that you can't really co-mingle foods with people. Now I just let you know um, I used to be kind of a food crazy person, so I ground my own flour, and we belonged to this organic co-op, and the only meat we ate was animals we'd seen live, you know, before we ended up getting the meat pack. It was really difficult to eat with other people. (laughs) Because they didn't do that stuff, you know? And when you hold on to the ideological purity, really it's just hard to have a meal together, you know? Uh, (laughs) It was in some ways uh, extremely divisive to, to family and friends. It caused my mother all kinds of worries. Not like having a Jewish boy, though. So, so, looked out. Um, and and again, this this stringent keeping of kosher applies to our Orthodox brothers and sisters, not so much to Reformed or Conservative. Does that sort of make sense? The Orthodox kitchen has to have two sinks, two kitchen sinks for preparation. It really does have to have two kitchens, thanks. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so and, and, and there's a little bit even implicit in these laws, according to the rabbis, about why certain things are prohibited. And, and the reason the rabbis give in general is about not mixing up categories. So this is going to sound really strange, but the rabbinic rule about what animals you can eat is that they have to be ruminants, so you're thinking animals that are vegetarian that eat grass and shrubs or woody ornamentals and the archetypal ruminant for a shepherd is a goat or a lamb which have split hooves the archetypal a food is a goat or a lamb now now cows also have split hooves and they're also ruminants so that's a goat but then you get a list of which animals you can't eat that are also ruminants. A horse is a ruminant. I mean, horses are vegetarian, they're not omnivores. Um, But they don't have a split hoof, so you can't have them. The reason being, if you start mixing categories, if you start departing from the archetype, you might go too far and eat something you shouldn't eat. It's almost like there's a rule and and an ideal, and then they put a fence around the ideal to make sure you don't ever get close to it. In fact, that's the name of it. It's called putting a fence around the Torah. Because if you start out thinking horses are fine, well, I mean, a pig has a split hoof, and it will eat vegetables if that's all you feed it. But pigs are omnivores, and that's why you can't have them. Bunnies are cute, and they multiply well. They're really a great food source in, 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 in desert environments, but they don't have hooves, so you can't have them. This is the rabbinic explanation, because they represent the beginning of mixing categories. And when I say mixing categories, think about this. We're talking about things that were distinct, that were holy, that are now starting to get, well, less holy, less distinct. The rule is very distinct. Not somewhat. That's why you can't have the rock badger either. Anybody ever had a rock badger? You gotta think through these rules. That must be a delicious animal. It must be amazing. Because if people weren't eating it already, there'd be no reason to say not to eat it. You know, I don't need to pass a law that says, don't eat rotten whale blubber. You're not gonna want that. Right? I'm only going to make that law if people are actively doing it. Does, does, does that make sense? So the rock badger must be a tasty animal. Um, consider also the birds of the air. So you can eat birds, but you can't eat predatory birds. You can't have peregrine falcons and eagles. Now, we've kept that a little bit, right? We we, we, we would think that's pretty gross to eat a falcon or an eagle because those are majestic birds. That's a holdover from this, Right? Because if you live in a country that's poor, or I had students live with me from China, they ate indiscriminately. You know, I mean, if, if you're hungry, you're gonna eat an eagle. Yeah, I mean, it, it may seem like a travesty of the majestic creation, but, but you can eat it. You know, I mean, you, you can eat anything, it turns out, if you fry it in soybean oil. So, so um, this, this, this is part of the deal. What about fish? Think about the rule. It lives in the water, and it's gotta have scales and fins. So you can eat those things but you can't eat a dolphin because it doesn't have scales and fins. It's like mixing the category up. It's not holy enough. It's not discreetly independent enough. That's why you can't have shellfish. They don't have scales. So sure that's, that's tasty and great, but, it, but it's, it's not the holy category. It's not the archetype of, of the water dweller. Now, some of you who are careful readers might also have noticed you can't have shellfish because they don't keep long. And that is true. These are people who don't have refrigerators or freezers, right? So you have a shrimp boil, you better eat all those shrimp. You try eating them tomorrow, you're going to get severely sick, right? I mean, we know that today. Um, But this isn't about being practical, And you'll hear people say, oh, the reason they couldn't eat pigs is because trichinosis happens in the meat if you don't cook it hot enough. People are pretty smart about what foods are poisonous for them at what temperatures. I mean, we figured a lot out by trial and error. You know, People figured out which mushrooms not to eat a long, long time ago. We don't know that anymore because we basically don't breed those in captivity. (coughs) Um, If you're interested to know, almonds are are naturally poisonous to humans, and we trained the almond tree to not poison us. So people figured that out. I mean, it's not like we're the first generation that has any sense. You know, people have known about poison foods and cooking temperatures for a long, long time. So don't think that these rules are meant to be practical or hygienic. They're meant to separate one people from another people. Particularly if you know anything about um, animal husbandry, bunnies and pigs... Are extremely easy to raise especially in desert climates when you have little to feed them. A a terrible animal to raise is a steer. It it takes an incredible amount something like nine pounds of grain and ten pounds of water to get one pound of red meat out of a steer. Extremely inefficient and they're not living in the Fertile Crescent so you you just got to think through they're really giving up a lot to lose the bunnies and the pigs. Again, this is not practical, and it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to demarcate one group of people from another. And just to further that, there are a number of other practices that really involve mixing categories that you can't do. I don't know if you notice these. You cannot wear a garment made out of two kinds of fabric. Anybody else read that? So that would mean no cotton polyester blends. And clearly a man made that rule because, um, (laughs) well, it sure cuts down on ironing to have cotton polyester blends. The truth is all of you in the room are violating that commandment right now. And the biblical word for a fabric made of two kinds, two different sources of fiber, is abomination. Abomination means, abomination is opposite of holy. Holy is set apart, archetypically clean. Abomination means mixed up, yuck, gross. Now, we've been taught along the way, uh, abominable snowman, you probably know that one. We've been taught that abomination means the worst possible category of sin. Reflect on the abominations you commit on a daily or regular basis. You wear Garments made of multiple fabric sources. You do. I'm looking at all of you. You're all doing it right now. You eat shellfish. The word for shellfish is abomination. What else is an abomination? Um, having two different kinds of animals pull a plow at the same time. So a donkey and an ox cannot plow together. That's abominable. Really sinful? Sinful opposite of holy because you've mixed categories. Think about this word, how important this word is. You can't sow two different kinds of seed in the same field because that mix the categories. It's abominable. I would almost guarantee that everybody who has a garden does that. You do not segregate your garden and put peas in one corner of your yard and tomatoes in the other corner. It's likely that they're near each other. Am I right? Abominable. We've been taught that it's a sin category. It's an identity category. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this, of course, is that then we get to hear about rules about how we're supposed to govern our our bodies and our sexual relationships. Think about all the laws that we read as mixing categories. A man and a beast, mixing categories, abominable. We still agree with that one, right? Because the animal doesn't have any agency. Just, Just think through that. A father and a daughter, that's mixing categories because the father and the daughter are not peers. The father is always above the daughter, so we know that category should not be mixed, and we still believe that one, right? This becomes a problem later in the New Testament. If you've read ahead, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how a man has married his stepmother. We don't know the exact fact pattern, but consider the man could be 20, the stepmother could be 20, that's not his mom and didn't raise him. Dad dies, so can they be married? And Paul says, Yuck! But doesn't say sin, says yuck. You just think through that. Brother and sister, not peers. They didn't grow up as peers. Don't mix the categories. All in agreement, right? We all agree on these ethics. Here's the real tough one, right? Is what about same-sex couples? And please notice, the scriptures don't ever talk about woman and woman. They talk about man and man. Mixed categories, abomination. Why is it mixed categories? Well, because a man's supposed to be with the woman. That's the cultural assumption. So if a man... But, but, you know, but consider how it's read. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, that's the law. So you can't lie with a man like you would with a woman, which makes you wonder, can you lie with a man like you would with a man? I mean, anatomically, not exactly. And I'm, I'm not trying to be gross or, or anything. What's important to notice, though, is that we single out the one use of this word and that relationship. And the real question is, most people who do that are not standing on the moral high ground to be able to do so. If you really like to use this word to talk about same-sex relationships, you'd better be wearing a garment made out of one kind of fabric and not eating shellfish, and not eating commercially grown produce, which by the way is grown in fields that have two different kinds of seeds. Do do you understand what I'm saying? Just to be internally coherent, you'd have to do that. Mike, I'm not clear on the statement about the same-sex relationships here. The man lying with the man like he lies with the woman. What did they mean? when this was written it's really it's really hard to know so you will read a lot of, of a lot of mixed study i mean i'll tell you 95% of what you'll read says that in the ancient world they didn't have the category about orientation that we have today the insu- the assumption was everybody is heterosexual everybody is so when you go against that norm right you're basically fighting nature now some people today still believe that, but in general the science I'm familiar with questions that right, and talks about tendencies or orientation, right, which are things that, that we now have some cultural acceptance of that there was no cultural understanding of, let alone acceptance of, in the ancient world. right. So the idea would be everybody is normally hetero, so if you're performing in a non-hetero way, that's against the category. Does that make sense? Well, it's so hard to know because, again, this word in the rest of the text, I mean, I would ask you to consider, I mean, in some ways, um, the word sin is not used anyway. The word sin is hatat. The word I- uh, abomination is toevah, and that's the word. So I-, I would ask you, is wearing a garment and of two different kinds of fabric, is that a sin? Well, it's not in the Hebrew Bible either, but it's an abomination. And you don't do it. <laughs> I mean, so I don't have a clear answer for you, except right. This is one of those particular passages that people like to like to beat us over the head with biblically. But but again, um, I think it's a slippery slope to pick this one when there's all these other things that are equally abominable. And there's not categories of abomination in the Bible. It is an abomination or it isn't. I mean, essentially, it's abominable or it's holy. In a same-sex relationships, because they just weren't thought about enough to mention. It. Well, they don't have legal standing. Women can't hold property. <laughs> it is, yeah. Legal codes apply apply to men here. Well, that's the view in the ancient world, right? Is that a man has become a woman by becoming submissive sexually, right? Which is a very different category than we think in general about sexual relationships, even hetero ones today, I hope, right? I mean, I I can tell you my own marriage. If I tried to to have a dominant, submissive relationship, I'd be single. (laughs) For good reason, right? Because to me, sexuality is meant to be unitive, not hierarchical. Do do, do, do you follow what I'm saying? But sexuality reinforced a hierarchy in the Bible. I mean, that's the the issue that happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not that they're homosexual, they're trying to show those people who's boss. And the way you do that is through rape, the ultimate power play. They're not interested in consensual sex with the visitors. You've gotta remember that. There was no interest in consent. This is still what happens in prison today. And we know this about prison right this is how you establish the pecking order in prison you rape the other inmates so i think this is important for us to consider yes ma'am i have a question about in orthodox jews today is that still um or not yes. homosexuality in orthodox judaism it's uh, still still considered not all right In Reform Judaism it is. But do consider that the people you see that are dressed like Polish nobility from the 1800s, the ones wearing the black hat, those clothes had better be made out of one fabric. And I mean that. They should be made out of one fabric. So they're across the board on following these rules. And is there a difference? I don't know the answer, surely surely, um, higher in, in Reformed Judaism. I mean, Reformed Judaism is, is basically like, um, what I wanna say, it's sort of like Judaism since the Reformation. <laughs> if you're Orthodox, the Torah is to be literally kept and not questioned. If you're Reformed, you, you question the Torah and whether or not, honestly, whether it's reasonable, which, which makes Reformed Judaism a lot like, well, the, Episcopal heritage where we have scripture, tradition and reason and no one is above the other, they're constantly in conversation <coughs> if that makes sense. But well, what you told me is very interesting because we have some um uh Jewish neighborhood and I happen to know that the woman is probably atheist from from having known her for a while and things she's told people, and it shocked me because I'm thinking and so that, that's very interesting. It's a way of life. You're just thinking about religion really is a way of life. Whether you have spiritual beliefs or not, it's a way of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, and that's an interesting thing to consider, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and Orthodox, orthodoxy is actually really interesting to folks now who are looking for a very structured way of living. Um, consider that people are converting intentionally um, to the Amish faith. People who grew up in it are leaving, but outsiders are interested in it. Because it's strictly regulated, and most of the rest of our lives are not. <laughs> People would like to have some secure identity. You know They'd like to know, this is how I do things. I, I mean, I think that's right. That's why most of us follow laws. <laughs> Some of us like the structure. Now listen, I don't, I don't want to try to miscommunicate something to you. I, I just, what I want you to hear is that um, the word abomination has mostly to do with mixing genres that were not theoretically to be mixed. And in general, we do this today. But as I've mentioned, there are many we, we keep, right? There's many that we keep. Uh, the prohibition on animals not so much right and you might say well well isn't that cuz when peter was up on that house and god lowered the sheet with all the unclean animals and peter said that's yucky stuff god and god said no no i've made all this stuff it's all good so god freed us from the food stuff but but there weren't any garments of two fabric in that so so there was no overturn of that one do you do you understand what i'm saying What's important to hear is that culturally we've picked and chosen what abominations are sinful and which ones were just history and the text itself never does that. So we picked that. The text didn't. The text says don't do any of that stuff. We said the shellfish are okay. We said the mixed garments are okay. I'm glad we said that because I'm terrible at ironing and my shirt looks like this even though it's a cotton poly blend and it's made by the Priestley Supply Company. They're abominable. You know, I mean, I can't believe they're doing this. But, but I do think it's important to go back to human sexuality and think through this, right? In general, we want mutuality in our relationships, and we want mutuality um, for our children and our grandchildren. There's nothing mutual about when you have sex with a virgin, you pay her dad the bride price. But that's one of the injunctions from our reading. Did anybody remember reading that? How romantic Fifty shekels of silver. How romantic, right? You're wondering, when's the wedding ceremony? That was it. When you paid, that was the ceremony. Now, all this other stuff has developed later, but please notice that even in that text, women are commodities. We still have vestiges of that. Does the mother or father give the groom away? The father gives the bride away because he owns her. That's where it comes from. Um, let me tell you, my father in law did not give my wife away. Um, she told him to sit down. <laughs> I mean, that was sweet. We seated our parents and then we got married. Um, it was just kind of sweet. No, it's weird, it doesn't matter to anybody but us, you know, but let me tell you, uh, she also was not going to appear on stage wrapped up like a gift, <laughs> so, so there was going to be no elaborate wrapping on her head for me to unwrap during the ceremony. Of course, you really know the function of the veil, we read it in the Jacob story, it's so that you don't marry the wrong lady because you're drunk, right? I mean, <laughs> like, these are some of these things, Okay. We took it out. It's not in the service. I've never done that. I haven't done that. But do other, do other religions still keep it in? Oh, I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard on wives submitting to their husbands. Really? Yeah. They left out the part that husbands submit to their wives. So they just forgot that part because that's how the scripture reads. Submit to your wives is to the Lord, actually. So that's, that's an interesting one. Um, we often think... We often miss patriarchal text, and sometimes we put it places where it doesn't belong, you know. And and I just want to say that part of what you're noticing here, I hope, is that these people have norms we just don't have. We don't have these norms. And it's really a little unfair for us to say, we'll take this one and not that one, without saying why. And again, I think the why part about a father and a daughter or a brother and sister is because they weren't peers, They never were peers. So how do you go from not being peers to being peers? I I don't know that you can't. I just, I don't know that you can't, you know? I've become very friendly with my mother. She will always be my mom, which means she cannot be my friend. Would you think about that? We speak the truth in love to each other, but she named me. I did not name her. I mean, we never are truly going to be equal. She will always be above me as my mother. That would be mixing categories. Brothers and sisters work like that. Interestingly enough, Abraham married his half-sister. I mean, just think, but think through this, right? Those ones are reasonable. Animals don't consent. Rape is no good because there's no consent. Do you see what I mean? That's reasonable. But I think we've got to be reasonable about this other stuff. Cotton polyester blends are great because we don't have to iron them. You know, I mean, they're just fantastic. Rayon is, is all right. You know, it really is okay. Some people wear too much of it. Y- yes, ma'am. <laughs> what about uh, in the Bible, here? your brother's wife, widow? Yeah, leather, right, marriage. I'm going to talk about that on the next page. Oh, okay. <laughs> or do you want me to tell you about it now? It's bizarre and it, it's completely behind the book of Ruth and it's behind when the Sadducees come up to Jesus and say, hey, there was a brother who married this lady and, and then he died without having kids. Here's what love right marriage says. Love right marriage is based on this idea that we heard about last week that's called primogeniture. That is that the firstborn son gets 90% of the goods and is essentially the chosen heir. Uh, again, sometimes you hear double portion, that's wrong. The firstborn boy gets 90%, the secondborn boy gets 10%, the girls get zero, okay? Um, Primogeniture says everything's riding on the firstborn boy. So imagine in, in your head, everything's riding on the firstborn boy and he dies without an heir. Leverite marriage is designed to replace the dead brother. This is not gonna make any sense to you, but I'm just gonna tell you how it works. Um, You've got, you've got somebody named Steve and he's got a little brother named Kevin and Steve gets married to Mary Jo. Well, Steve dies before Mary Jo has a baby. Now here's a problem. Everything was riding on Steve and he's dead. So truly, it'd be great if you could bring Steve back from the dead. Here's how you do it. Kevin. Marries Mary Jo, or not marries. Hard to say if he marries her or not. What's going to happen is Kevin and Mary Jo are going to have a baby, and guess who the baby's going to be? Steve. (laughs) Uh, Kevin does not own that baby, and think about it. If he's the second-born brother and Steve's the first, Steve's getting 90% of the inheritance, and he's only getting 10. Hey, with no Steve, he gets 100 When he has a baby with Mary Jo, the baby gets the 90% and Kevin goes back to getting the 10%. So even though it's legislated, we don't know how many people did it because you lost everything. You went from a windfall of an inheritance back to 0 or 10%. When Ruth, Ruth has a baby, she lays it on Naomi's lap to signify that it was Naomi's baby. Ruth was like the surrogate replacing Naomi's dead son. That's Leverite marriage. Bizarre, right? Don't ask me to explain why or how, that's just the rule. So when you see it, that's, that's, that's the deal. Okay, I got really bogged down on this bit about mixing genres, but I think it explains a lot of what we read. There's some other things that I think are pretty interesting about what we read. Did you notice that the the life is in the blood of the animal, like twice? I didn't make that up last week, that's that's there. Um, Other thing about holiness is there's some interesting ways that we can be set apart, And, and by the way, if we're not, the land itself will vomit us out. That's an interesting claim. Think, think through some of these things with me. Um, you'll be holy if you don't harvest your own field, if you leave some to be gleaned, because not everybody's got land and there's poor people and they've got to eat. Imagine what would happen today if someone came to glean your field. You'd call the police, wouldn't you? <laughs> and even if they asked, you'd probably say no, because you wouldn't want the liability of them getting hurt in your field right? Um, this is holiness in the Bible, and to not do it is abominable. Um, gosh, this is, this is a controversial sermon to preach. It's in Leviticus. Think with compassion and empathy on the alien in your midst because you were aliens in a foreign land. Wow. I mean, doesn't that apply to us? I do not see any Native Americans in the room. We're all aliens. How interesting that thinking about um, how we treat aliens is so controversial. You know? It, well, it was, except the injunction is, be good to them, right? And, and, and here's why. The people in Egypt aren't. They don't care about the alien. They didn't care about you. And you won't be like them. You won't put people in bondage the way you were put in bondage. You won't hold um, Hebrew as a second language over somebody and diminish them because you know what that's like. They did that to you. I mean, that's a, whew, that's a scathing social justice sermon in Leviticus, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But,
1: and,
0: but it also talks about still being set apart. Yeah, and the, and, and, and the most noticeable way to be set apart is to treat them well. Um, You ever see uh, orthodox um, adolescents, these are called peyote, you saw why, there's five places you can't shave, one, two, three, four, five. Now that would be a discernible way to tell somebody apart physically. As I told you, remember, um, Joseph's brothers don't recognize him because he doesn't have a beard. All the Hebrew people had beards, and you're thinking about Hagrid from Harry Potter, Don't think about something neat and clipped and trimmed. You're thinking bushy. Right? Um, This is one of those ways you can be set apart physically. Look at this one. This is so great. Another way to be set apart is don't slander. (laughs) Slander is normal. So you'll be set apart if you don't do it. This is like, these are like I mean, again, these are scathing social critiques, aren't they? About how to practice holiness. Wizards are normal, but don't you go see them, because that's not all right. Remember, wizards are normal in the Bible. There's people who can do magic stuff, like turn rods into snakes and turn water into blood. The Bible believes people can do that. Even in the New Testament, there's a guy called Simon Bar-Jesus, and he can do some kind of magic. We don't really know what it is. In the Middle Ages, it turns out he can fly around. Um, (laughs) Yeah, really, we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, so the Bible doesn't really say that wizards are, 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 are silly. It says, just don't have those, be different. Obviously, I mean, who are wizards today? I don't know, tarot card readers, palm readers, weathermen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who the other wizards are, <laughs> but, but don't have them, right? That's the injunction is don't have them. You notice that you have to pay a worker their wages every day. You can't pay them at the end of the week because they may not make it to the end of the week in a subsistence economy. Well, that's interesting to think about. Right? We're, we're not really in a subsistence economy right now in the United States. Most of the rest of the world is. Right? So to, to think about what difference that makes is pretty huge. Um, do you notice in Leviticus, I mean, it's this is boring, tedious book, isn't it? In the middle says, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean that's more than 3,000 years old, and it comes in Leviticus, which you thought was the worst, most boring book. All this good stuff comes from. Leviticus. I mean that's that there's that golden chapter in Leviticus that amounts to a really good sermon about how we're meant to treat each other. Uh, maybe it's okay. Uh, well, now I'll come back to that when we get to Deuteronomy. Let me back up to Exodus. Is that okay? Or did I, did I go through this too fast? I probably went too slow, right? And I probably didn't exhaust it for you. You're going to probably get bored. I'm just really worried about it. And just say, like, you're skipping something I care about, or I don't care about that. Um, in, in Exodus, notice, it's important to just throw this out there, God shows up on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, it always depends which book you're reading, Um, in like a firestorm. Um, Maybe this is an erupting volcano. I mean, who knows? But God's on top of a mountain. And and really, I, I told you last week, there's some gods you worship in valleys because they're gods of the earth. The gods of the sky you go up high for. Right, so this is God saying, I live in the sky, I'm meeting you at my lowest point, which is on top of a mountain. Uh, notice there's this weirdness about it, right? which is the people say, we don't want to look. You tell us what to do, Moses. Um, and, and then later there's the commandment, don't look, don't touch. Right? Anyone who touches the mountain will be stoned. That includes animals, because right? the mountain's too, too holy. So it's hard to say which it was. The people didn't want to, or God didn't want them to, or both. Right? But, but I just want to point out, it, it, it does vacillate a little bit. When Moses gets ready to go up, they have to consecrate their clothes, which means wash them. <laughs> now, we consecrate bishops. Um, usually, we don't wash them in the ceremony. Hopefully, they've washed ahead of time. It also means abstaining from sexual relations until the time is over. So just point out. Again, we think about consecration maybe in different ways, but this, biblically, is how you consecrate stuff. You wash it. Um, you, 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 you clean it up. This didn't happen every day, right? Um, <clears throat> before we talk about this one, I just want to remind you, the Hebrew people have lived in bondage and done what the Egyptians have told them for generations, right? So they don't have any corporate memory of being able to do what they want that's real, They've been living other people's laws for as long as they can remember. And, and, and the question is, now that they're free, will they just tweak those laws, or could they actually go back and think of a way of doing things that's independent and better, a new legal system? If I asked you how to fix the law, most of you would say you would make small changes to what we have, I, I think. Because we're familiar with it. Like, speed limits shouldn't apply to me. Or, um, <laughs> you, you know, I don't like the number of handicapped parking spaces. There should be more or there should be fewer. Do you, you, you know what I mean? We would, we would dicker with certain um, outcomes. But the system itself, we've been so nurtured and fostered by, it's really hard to reinvision the whole system. Um, in some ways... Um, this is an opportunity to think about re-envisioning the whole system because now, look, you're, you're not under somebody else's system. So what will you do that, with your freedom? I mean, basically, that's the question. What will you do with your freedom? And when you put it that way, you think about what God starts out giving Moses on top of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the ten words. Right? Remember, they're not the Ten Commandments. They're not. In Hebrew, the word is davarim, which means ten words. In Greek, it's called the Decalogue, which means ten words. The reason they're called the ten words is because you can take all ten of what we now call commandments and express them in single words in Hebrew. If you do this trick you learned when you read Beowulf in the 12th grade, it's called a kenning. You may not remember this, but whale road is one word in Beowulf. It's an artificial compound. Whale well, road's not a real word, you know, but, but they, they've put it together to make a compound. It's a kinning. And this is what happens a little bit in the Davarim. Instead of saying thou shalt not kill, in Hebrew it says not kill, and that's one word, not steal. Um, honor, the, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, they pull that off in one word in Hebrew. So there's just 10 words. That, that's, that's what happens, right? And Again, I think this was in the sermon like two weeks ago. You could live the Ten Commandments and never know your neighbor. You could just build a really big wall between them, like that Robert Frost poem, right? Good fences make good neighbors. You'd never see what they had, so you could never covet it. You'd never kill them. You'd never commit adultery with them. You'd be walled off, and would you be a good neighbor? Now, don't get me wrong. If you kill your neighbor, you're not a good neighbor. Okay. And if you steal from them, that's going to challenge your ability to have a positive neighborly relationship. <coughs> but those are minimums, not maxima. Do you, do you, you know what I'm saying here? Necessary but, not sufficient. Necessary but insufficient. That's right. In some ways, right, I have good relationships with neighbors who I've transgressed, you know, rules with, and we've, and we've reconciled, and, and that's been helpful. You know, much more so than if we'd never met or transgressed anything. We had the opportunity for reconciliation. A couple of these ones to pick on, if it's okay. You'll have no other gods before me. I just want to remind you, um, most scholars would tell you there's not monotheism at this point. There's something called monolatry, which is the worship of one god with the belief that there might be others. We just don't worship them. So, don't have other gods before me is not as clear as we've been taught. One way to read it is, there are other gods, but you just put me first. Does that make sense? The psalm appointed for Sunday reads, Ascribe to the Lord, all you gods. Which ones? The text Never categorically excludes until we get to the second part of Isaiah that there are other gods. They're just of an inferior nature to God, or else they're not to be worshipped. Only God is. Remember, Jacob has clearly got polytheistic worship practices going on. He steals idols. He does obeisance to them. God has to tell him, put those away. Um, so, so even in the Davorim is, is this reference about other gods maybe, right? Just, just want to point out. Um, the other interesting thing is that the, the Davorim does not say don't murder. It says don't kill. Of course, we change the word around because we're um, not comfortable with that. <laughs> and, and it might be helpful to know that when um, animals are slaughtered in the Jewish tradition, they have to be slaughtered by a rabbi. Uh, and basically the rabbi says, sorry God, I know I shouldn't be killing, and says a blessing over the animal before it's killed, right? And that's the difference between a commercial meat packing facility and a kosher one. The kosher animal slaughtered by hand and blessed by somebody before it's killed. Um, I heard one of the bishops of Texas say that this command is one of the reasons that we always need military chaplains. I just want to say this because I thought it was really interesting. We all know that killing is wrong. We were raised to know that. And then soldiers are told to kill, and we say, good job, you did their duty. And that's oxymoronic, and that's why we need chaplains. And I just thought that was an interesting conclusion to draw um, from one of the bishops of Texas. Right? Um, just thought I'd mention it. I'm giving you all kinds of things to make you upset with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but killing is an important bit, right? And in some ways, we are, there's this trend coming back around, you know, that many of us that grew up seeing that meat was a product only wrapped in a grocery store, and hearing that it might have been an animal, that's very different from seeing an animal killed, right? And, and a lot of people say that's a loss of our humanity, that we don't do that anymore. And, and I don't know the answer to that, right? Because it's against the law to slaughter animals in your yard because of disease vectors, right, depending on your zoning. Uh, But this is interesting stuff to think about. Do you notice the injunction against having an altar made out of anything except for earth? So you can, and this is a religious thing, right? This is not a social thing. You can't make an altar out of hewn stones and you never can mortar them together. So this is in the Torah. Where does an altar get made? Later. Do you know the answer? A permanent altar. Where do they make one? At the temple in Jerusalem. It's not just made out of hewn rocks, it's made out of bronze bulls. Twelve of them. That comes in the Navim. The Torah says not to do it. (laughs) The Torah should have trump power. It's interesting. I'm just telling you, Hebrew religion changed. Changed from the time of the Torah. You don't have temples because God doesn't live in a house. You have a tent to remind you gods everywhere to when David comes and builds a house and an altar made out of bronze. Um, Maybe important to remind you that Deutero means second. Nomos means law. It is second law. And well, you know, it sounds a lot like Exodus, right? When you read it, it's a lot of similarities. That's why it's called the second law. (laughs) Some of the neat things to think through. Um, You can only be a slave for six years. In the seventh year, you have to be let go. And it doesn't mean that you're a slave for six years and then you're let go the seventh. It means every seven years is a year of freedom. And if you were brought into slavery the sixth year, you still go free the seventh year. Why do you have to do that? Because the Egyptians kept you forever. You can't be like them. Consider that this presents... Prevents people from becoming um, subcategories of people. They have the opportunity to redo and have relief. We don't do this today. We didn't do this in the American South. Slave for life, and your children belong to us too. Yeah. Oh well, that's a, that's that's a good thought. That's fair enough. Um, I I do think there's other places where we don't though and I would mention um, countries who have suffered from imperialism who have been economically exploited for generations and have no relief from that so if you just read the history of Haiti it's really sad I mean those are people who have no opportunity for relief because they have no opportunity for infrastructure right or or self-government basically Uh, so interesting about bankruptcy That's, uh, that's good I hadn't considered that and you're good. See, it's nice to do this. Okay, so we do this some, but we don't do it um, unilaterally. But in my mind, what BB you I always think, you know. I wonder if that's where that came from. was what I was thinking. And it's probably not, but when I, when I read it. Egyptian heritage is a lot. But of course, the number seven is... Good biblical number, right? Yeah. Fixed in our subconscious as a good number, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, there's also the injunction that if it's the sixth year and you're going to take somebody as a slave, you should not do it because you only get them the rest of the year. That would be greed on your part. And this is that quote that gets put back in Jesus' face. Right? So this happens in Mark, actually it happens in all the Gospels. Judas pours the $80,000 perfume on Jesus' head at Holy Week. right? And, and Judas is really upset that Jesus accepted the gift. He says, that could have been sold for a lot of money. And that money could have been given to the poor. And then notice that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. He says, the poor you'll always have with you. Which is a quote out of here. The rest of the passage reads, because you are greedy. (laughs) You'll have the poor because you're greedy. In some ways, Judas thinking about the cash value is him thinking about the money instead of the human being. Now listen, I don't like, that story is weird to me. But Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. And reminding us that when we start thinking about how long we get somebody and is it a great return on our investment and it's a person and not a commodity, that's why there's poverty in the world. I mean, that's an interesting commentary. I don't, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. It's is an interesting commentary. I'm, I'm not sure that it is a meta-theory, but, but uh, there's some insight to it, right? Do um, you notice there's cities of refuge? This is a nice provision. If you commit involuntary manslaughter, there's somewhere you can flee. Right? Um, It's worth knowing that all altars have horns in the ancient world. We're not sure why, but on the corners you're imagining horns. And you can hold those and have sanctuary or asylum. And, And, of course, that came into the Middle Ages as well, that churches were consecrated ground and people could go and claim asylum. happened in L.A. like maybe 10 years ago. People facing deportment were claiming sanctuary in churches with kind of mixed results as to whether or not INS would go in. It really depended on the agent, the sanctuary claim. Um, You notice there's this thing that we think sounds terrible, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it's important to know that in the ancient world, if someone took your eye, you could kill their entire family. So in some ways, this law is saying this is the maximum retribution not the minimum. We sort of read it opposite. Because Gandhi was great, right? An eye for an eye would make the world blind. Um, I think people get that. But, but when somebody knocks, you know, bumps your shin and you kill their children, that's why there's laws like this. Um, this is not a biblical law originally. This is in the Code of Hammurabi, which predates the Bible by like 800 years. Maybe you've read this before. And again, revolutionary at the time to limit, to limit retribution. A lot of restri- restitution talk, right, if, somebody, if you steal something and, and you say, sorry, that's not enough. <laughs> we get this today. You've got to give it back. <laughs> With damages. Sometimes 500% is the damage. You know, that's, that's pretty high. Lots of restitution talk, and you notice that there's subcategories of people. Like if you kill a slave, you don't get put to death, but you do have to pay. If you kill a free person, you get put to death. All right? so there's... There's different levels. Notice that you can not kill your own slaves, but you can beat them. But if they die, then you're in big trouble. Again, that's different from the American South, too, depending, depending where you live, right, and what kind of owner you chose to be. This interesting one, right? If somebody's burgling your house at night, you can kill them. But if it's daylight, you can't. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Oh, in Texas, you can kill them anytime. No, no, you can kill them during the day, too. No, you can't. That's right. That's the stand-your-ground laws, right? That's what they do. But I just want to point out, that's really different from what we're doing right now. It's, it is different. At night, you don't know if they have a weapon. During the day, obviously, if they have one, that's different. But during the day, you can see that they don't have one. You know, that's the presumption of this law, I think. Just interesting. We're still working this stuff out, is what I want to try to say. You you, you know, I'm not saying what we have now is bad. I just It's just a little different from what we have. And and this has been going on, this problem of burglary has been going on for a long, long time. And there weren't even any skylights you could fall through. You know, I mean, that just complicates things. Um, Do you notice that there's three feasts? There's Passover, there's the Harvest Festival, and then forgot to tell you the third one. But there are three. <laughs> I don't know if you would noticed that. I read that passage like four times and it was like, where is the third feast? I didn't tell you. Um, just thought you should know. Um. Here's a weird thing. All of a sudden shows up this command, you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Right? Comes out of nowhere. And what on earth is it doing? And you know, if you, if you, if you know anything about it, kashrut um, modern, this is the, the prohibition against eat, mixing meat and dairy. So no Jewish person can eat a cheeseburger and they can never have a pizza that has any meat on it, let alone pepperoni because that would be swine, you know. There's kosher I mean, I'm sure it's just made out of nitrates, but um, <laughs> probably tastes the same. Um, but this is actually a weird word because I told you before that Hebrew, is a letter that only has consonants originally. The vowels are added much, much later, like 2,500 years later um, in a moment of scarcity. So curious that I wrote the word fat up here. In in Hebrew, the word milk is the word halav, and uh, the word fat is cholev, and it has the same consonants. Now, a lot of scholars will tell you this passage actually should read don't boil a kid or cook a kid and its mother's fat. The reason being is that would make sense with some of the other rules we read. Like when you come across a bird's nest in the woods and it's got a mom and babies in it, you either pick the mom or the babies, but you can't have all the birds. Because if you killed two generations at a time, there'd be no more generations. And that's, that makes sense, right? The mom can have more babies, the babies can grow and have more babies. You eat them all, there go all the birds. Right? So, so in some ways, this is, this is a practical law against annihilation. And if you're cooking a kid in its mother's fat, you see you've killed two generations at a time. Milk makes less sense because you can get milk every day out of a goat. Right? I mean, that doesn't threaten future generations. So how did it come to be translated milk if the letters and the case make a lot more sense for fat. Well, rabbinic tradition says that when Moses went up on the mountain, God gave him two laws, the written Torah and the oral Torah. And the oral Torah has been passed down from Moses to his descendants for thousands of years. It was only written down really in about 1,000 of the common era, that's A.D. Had to do with the advent of um, easier print, and also with um, the extermination of Jewish people across the world through things like pogroms and the Inquisition. So um, they decided to write this down, and in the oral Torah, this word is milk, not fat, and that's the reason it shows up in kosher today. Not because of the Bible, but because of the interpretation behind the Bible. Okay, can we back a little bit? Please. Yeah, that's just really weird because that's the harvest feast. I mean, that's that's the second one. That's Passover, right? I mean, in general, they're the same one. I mean, you could really try to split hairs and say that the ingathering, gathering and the harvest. Just think about that, though. Ingathering and harvest are this are the identical thing agriculturally. When you harvest, you ingather. You, you, the, So, so that's 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 helpful. Heart, heart. I mean, that would explain the feast of um, Sukkot, which happens in the fall. That's where you sleep underneath a tent that's open, and Jewish people still do this today. Like you put a tent up in your yard that is not skyproof, so you can see outside. That's a fall harvest. There's another one that happens in see, Passover is always spring. There's a an early one that's called, um, I just blanked on it. My Bible didn't have that clarity. That's what I want to say. Well, that might be helpful. Um, What's missing? Um, Purim, Hanukkah, Yom Kippur. Do you notice none of those made it in there? Yom Kippur is like the most important one and it's not here yet. We'll read about that next week, actually. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, That'd be like Simhat Torah would be the earlier one, but that's like the gift of the Torah, and that's when it happens. It's like the the earlier harvest. I I need to go back and check that. Thanks. I need to go back and check it. Um, We read the story about the golden calf this week in church, right? And um, you notice that in some ways Moses comes out looking a little bit better than God initially. Moses talks God out of being upset. Um, And then as soon as that's over, Moses sure gets real mad, you know. Um, It's like they swap places where he breaks the commands and then he grinds up the calf and they drink it and then he tells all the Levites to take a sword and go around and indiscriminately kill people. And then God gives them a plague. (laughs) Did you notice that? It's kind of like an unhappy ending. If we'd ended at the other story where God's like, "Fine, I won't kill the people," that seemed like a better ending for me. I don't know about you. Um, Then for Moses to get off his rocker and God inflict plague on people and the priest—this is not a high opinion of priests, is it? We run around killing people for the Lord. I mean, this is just not good. Um, It's just—it's a little lackluster. The ending, right? It seems really, really unfortunate. Remember that the people who have made the the golden calf didn't have the commandment against making images yet because Moses still had it. They didn't know it. Just a compassionate read. Remember that the calf they made, they didn't name it Marduk or Baal. They said it's the Lord. Remember that at the temple in Jerusalem, the altar is made out of 12 bulls. The calf sure is a symbol for Baal. I mean, it is. So how, you rec- how do you make that coherent? Because I'm confused. I don't know how to make it coherent for you, except that there's this lovely word called syncretism. Maybe you've heard of it before. And basically, it's when one people group comes in contact with another, finds some of their practices like interesting, explanatory, helpful, and incorporates them back into their own without having a wholesale conversion. There's words in our vocabulary that prove this. The word karma you're familiar with. You know that means what goes around comes around, right? But not really, because in the Hindu religion, that may not happen in this lifetime. Because in the Hindu religion, there's a transmigration of souls and reincarnation, and karma could take a thousand reincarnations before it happens. And it explains why bad, people ha- why bad things happen to good people. They were bad a thousand lives ago. We didn't believe in any of that stuff in the West, but the concept of what goes around comes around is appealing to us, so we've just used the word karma to our own benefit. And that would be syncretism. Um, later, I'll make the case for you that the devil, the red guy with the tail, um, comes from a syncretistic encounter with the Persians. And uh, when we get to Job, you'll see Satan appear, but not like that, and much different. Um, so a lot of people will say like ideas like the immortality of the soul that your body has a spiritual soul and that's different from your body that's not a Hebrew idea that's a Greek idea and it doesn't come into the Bible until we get Greek manuscripts and it's syncretism if that sort of makes sense and and same with the Baal and the calf Um, how was God originally depicted we don't know but when they met people worshiping Baal with a calf, oh, okay, well, well, sure, God just is the cow. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it, became, it was the dominant image for God, so you don't have an image for your God, and here's this image of strength, that one will work. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we read about the Nazarites. Those are people who take a vow... And it's worth, ex- I think the reason we explain this is because some of these people have the significance later. You're a Nazarite for a brief period during which you've made a vow, like, I'm going to get a four-year degree. Well, during that vow, you don't cut your hair, you don't drink wine, and you don't touch dead things, which means you don't eat meat. When you're done with the vow, like when you get your diploma, you shave your head and you go back to doing those things. Nazarite means guardian, uh, guardian. And and interesting, Matthew says um, he'll be be from Nazareth, Nazareth, and it's a wordplay, the scripture, the the, the prophet he quotes says he'll be a Nazarite, not from Nazareth. And, and, And Matthew conflates the two to apply it to Jesus. There was no Nazareth when this was written. They weren't even in the promised land. Does it make sense what I'm saying? There are three Nazarites their whole life in the Bible. Does anybody know who they are? John the Baptist, Nazarite his whole life. From the time he's born, his hair is never cut. When you see pictures of John with short hair, bad picture. Anybody, you know the other two? Samson, who breaks every single one of the vows, his hair's cut. That's the third one. That's when he loses his strength. He touches a dead lion and he drinks plenty of wine. One other one. And that's Samuel. They all represented special births because the first two, Samuel and Samson, their mothers were barren and God directly intervened to bear them. And Elizabeth is past childbearing age. She's like Sarah. So they give their child to God by making them a Nazarite their whole life. I think that's why we read about him. Um, you notice that the spies think the land's great, but it's inhabited with giants and they shouldn't go there. So Caleb and Joshua disagree. Joshua Joshua's also called Hosea. I don't know if you noticed that. Two, two names, same guy. Um, The giants are called the Nephilim. Your translation might have said this. It means fallen ones, and it goes back to this passage we read in Genesis 6. The sons of God looked upon the daughters of men, the Bnei Elohim, whatever those are, and they produced this super race of people that are essentially demigods, and those are called the Nephilim. Moses kills the last two himself, Og of Bashan and Sihon of of Gad. Um, They're like 12 feet plus tall. Now, Goliath's only nine feet tall, so he's just tall. These people are Nephilim, and they're like super people. They're like, the, we haven't found any skeletons like this, just so you know. But the, the belief is there's these extraordinary, like, demigod superhumans, and the land apparently is full of them, and that's why they don't want to go. Because they're like midgets trying to fight giants. Again, the, the, the record we have doesn't confirm <laughs> that (laughs) they were midgets and 12 foot tall people but that's how the text reads so you can understand why they're loath to go there and the people say well we won't go and then moses has to be the intermediary again Do you notice and he uses the same strategy god this will be bad for your reputation (laughs) do not kill these people and then he says something really darn interesting doesn't he don't remember these people according to their lack of merit remember them according to your merit sort of a nice phrase right God don't look on me according to what I've done but look on me according to what you've done for me that's an interesting phrase (laughs) It makes you sort of wonder about these things like open communion (laughs) Uh, and whether or not accountability belongs with sacraments or whether it belongs in the penal system You know, the prayer book allows a priest to um, withhold communion from anybody, especially if they're a notorious sinner. And the prayer book allows me to publish your name as a notorious sinner in the community and announce that you will be withheld communion until you publicly repent. It's an interesting idea. I'm pretty sure a hundred years ago it was effective, but probably only from the fear-based category and not for the actual desire-to-be-reconciled category. I just ask you to think through that. Um, there's this other interesting prayer that happens in Rite 1. We haven't done it here for a bit. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. If you're familiar with it, it says, We're not worthy, O Lord, to approach your table. But it happens in the liturgy after the confession and the absolution. So it actually is fighting the liturgy itself. The liturgy says that at the point of absolution, you are worthy to approach the table because God just made you worthy. So to go and say that might resonate with our feelings, but it's not true in the service. Does does that make sense what I'm saying? I don't mean it's a bad prayer. It comes at the wrong time. If God has absolved us, then we're worthy. If God has said, you're invited to my table, then we're worthy even if we don't feel like we are. So it's an interesting thing that God looks upon us not according to what we deserve with our actions, but with the commitment God's already had for us. The same thing, I think, is true with the way we would approach our children. And this is part of growing up, is realizing what your parents would look past or what they'd love you through, you know? I don't mean they'd love you through getting a C on a test. I figured out that they would. <laughs> I only had to do it once. Now, it's an interesting thing to think through, what's the worst thing you could tell your parents? The thing that would break their heart, I mean to bits, you know? My brother came close when he converted to Judaism. Um, it was helpful he did that the week that I became an Episcopal priest, because uh, it was kind of like running interference for me becoming a liberal Christian that's kind of Catholic. Um, I was much better than the other, than the other bit. But you know, I, and an honest bit, and it's probably weird that, that I'm saying this uh, in a recording, and then otherwise, I've, I've come to appreciate about my mother. If I were to tell her the thing, I know that she would like would decimate her. If I were to say, you know, Mom, I just I just need you to know I'm gay. Um, that would be the worst thing I think I could ever tell her. I'm positive she'd love me. I, she'd love me anyway. My, my being her son would not be at stake in that decision because she's already decided where her value is. Do you you know what I mean? Uh, It took me a long time. Like I probably was in my 30s before I realized that. (laughs) Um, And I wonder if this isn't the kind of advocacy Moses is actually doing. You know? I mean, the truth is, those of you who have kids or have spouses, you imagine what's the worst thing you could ever do. Sure, you might have to have accountability, but, I, but it would never destroy the love that you have for your child or your spouse. Do, do you know what I mean? It might compromise your future, but not what you have. Well, I, I think that's right. Anyway, my kids are sure trying to figure out if they can get that out of me, depending on the day. Um, but, but, but this works. For, for, for Moses. And, and again, interesting way to think about our relationship with God. Um, Deuteronomy does bring something that's really important, and it happens in chapter 6, and this is sort of like the most important injunction if you're, if you're Jewish. It's called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and all your strength. We know this one, right? Um, uh, remember that the things don't mean what we think they mean. You'll love the Lord your God, in Hebrew it reads, with all your heart which is the center of your will. That's like your brain. You'll love the Lord your God with all of your decision-making capability. With all your soul, and remember in Hebrew, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. So if there were anything left after the center of your will, you will also love God with that. And then in Hebrew, the word is, and with all your exceedingness. (laughs) I know that's weird. you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your exceedingness, with anything left over after even that. This is like a total commitment phrase. How interesting that Jesus puts this one with the Leviticus one when asked about the greatest commandment. He says the second command is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that doesn't sound like that to me at all. (laughs) They sound very different, right? And and it's interesting to reflect, there's this old understanding uh, in the Orthodox tradition that says that you can only love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And the way the Orthodox draw this diagram is they sort of say that we are at all times in this um, equilateral triangle, um, equidistant from God, from others, and from the self God made us to be. We often have this false dichotomy, says the Orthodox, that we can draw closer to God and simultaneously get farther from our neighbor. And the Orthodox say, no, it doesn't work like that. If you get closer to God, you will love your neighbor more. And if you love your neighbor more, you will love yourself more. They're all bound up. What they say is that this relationship can only dilate, it can only contract or expand. And what about this business about your relationship with yourself? Because aren't there selfish people out there? I'm sure they are, but selfishness is not a proper relationship with the self God made you to be. <laughs> and there's this other thing that my, my faith taught me to denigrate myself. Really hard to appreciate giftedness in others when you don't appreciate the giftedness you have. And think through, if you are not grateful or aware of any gifts that you have, when you see other people have them, how could you be anything but jealous? In some ways, maybe it's worth considering that if you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. And then you can't really love God either. <laughs> this is an interesting interesting thing to, to put together. Um, the word I got in church as a boy was humility and humility meant putting yourself down. Um, Anglican studies professor I had in seminary said that humility is being exactly who God made you to be no more and no less. That's an interesting thought to tack on the no less bit. Right? And it comes back a little bit to that business about always going before God and saying I'm not worthy I'm no good if that defines the relationship we have with God, what relationship do we have? Well, it wouldn't be a relationship. It would be like a monologue between God and us, right? This is interesting to think what Jesus does, right? And he draws both of these together and equates them out of the reading that we just did. Um, You you may not be surprised. There's this book that was really influential for me called I Thought It Was Just Me But It Isn't. It's a Brene Brown book. And she estimates that at least 95% of women, she doesn't really do a lot of studying on men early in her career, have body issues. I know that's a surprise. Are not comfortable in their own body. (laughs) Really interesting if we're not comfortable with our own bodies, to be comfortable with other bodies. I mean, I just, I just want to, I don't want to overstay this, but it's interesting to think about, you know? Um, what if in middle school we were asked, what would you change about your body? And we said, nothing, I'm just happy with it how, it, how I am. And then we would be happy with other people the way they look, too. I mean, I, or we'd have a chance of that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Which would have been really helpful in middle school. I was not that person, <laughs> I'll just let you know. Um, Back to the Shema, there's something really interesting about this. This explains modern Jewish practice, a couple of them. Um, If you ever go to a Jewish house, there's a little box outside called the mezuzah, and inside the mezuzah is this verse written on a scroll and rolled up because the verse says you'll put it on the doorposts of your house. And if you ever go to a bar mitzvah, especially if you go to an Orthodox one, bar mitzvah means son of the command. Orthodox don't have bat mitzvahs because girls don't get to study the Torah, the boys wrap around their head a box and wrap them on their wrists. Those are called either phylacteries, that's the Greek word, or tefillin, that's the Hebrew word. Um, Inside the box is the scroll with Deuteronomy 6, because you'll put them on your heads and bind them to your wrists. You'll tell them to your children every time you get up and when they lay down, Hero, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and exceeding this. Um, you don't see people walking around in the tefillin or phylacteries. They really only belong in Shabbat prayer services. So, like, you won't see me wear the chasuble on my golf cart going to Starbucks. That only is worn at the Eucharist. If I'm doing a wedding and there's no Eucharist, I don't wear it. Um, not cuz it's a diminutive service it's just not where you do it so you only wear the phylactery and the tefillin at, at prayer services if that sort of makes sense some people might put it in the necklace i don't know but you, it's unlikely you've seen somebody wearing this around their head just kind of casually walking down the street even in israel i didn't see that happen at all i thought i, thought I did you saw people with the tefillin where they have the, to were they at the Western Wall? Well, because that's where they were having a prayer service. <laughs> that was, that's their synagogue, right? I mean, but you wouldn't see them in McDonald's with that on, right adjacent to the Western Wall, you know? I, that's what I, I'm just trying to draw. It's, it's a religious garment for a religious purpose. It's not worn all the time. The kippah is. You wear that all the time. Which, by the way, is another way to tell, right, Ostensibly today. You, you think about people with big beards, with black hats, or with kippah, they're also called yarmulkes. That's the Yiddish word, the Hebrew word is kippah. Um, you know they're Jewish, right? It's a way of being set apart, just coming full circle. You know a house is a Jewish house in general if they have a mezuzah, right? It's set apart visibly. What's the difference between Yiddish and Hebrew? Well, um, you know, Yiddish is this, this bizarre blend of of sort of old Hebrew and German, maybe. I mean, it's an, it's, it's an, it's an, it's an Eastern European blend. Um, Hebrew was a dead language for so long that we, it was reinvented in the late 1800s so that there could be a Hebrew language. Biblical Hebrew only has 10,000 words, so they had to make a bunch of words up, you know, because the world's a big place now. Um, So that's the difference. No one really knows how to pronounce biblical Hebrew because Germans are the ones who kind of came back. We pronounce it Germanically. We're not sure it's right. Uh, If it's in continuity with Yiddish, we say that's where the Hebrew language ended up going. But there's other blends. You know, Yiddish is what happened um, for the Sephardic tradition. In Spain, in in, um, the Ashkenazi tradition, it's called Ladino, and that's a blend between Spanish and Hebrew, Ladino. And really nobody knows Ladino anymore, a small group. It's, it's surging. You know, people who have that heritage are trying to learn it to kind of reinvigorate their dying heritage, yeah. Yiddish and Ladino. Okay, I, I, I totally talked that to death. Sorry, you didn't even get to see a cool video. Um, next week we'll get to learn about the religious laws Uh, the religious guidelines and there'll be some neat surprises for you about how all that works, maybe. Okay, see you next week. Oh, I'm supposed to announce to you that next week, uh, next Thursday, is um, an African craft market coming and this is our Director of Enrichments is putting this on and really it supports women who are on the edge of poverty in in, in Nairobi and this is what they're doing to kind of help create a a cooperative. So that'll be here Um, 100% of proceeds go to the project, that's from 7 to 9 next Thursday night.